Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everyone, great to have you along. I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome. This is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care. Available at Repco in Australia and New Zealand, as well as a range of other auto stores. This pod is part one of two with a guy who, well, he's raced just about everything, as you'll hear over the next two weeks, but he's done it without pomp and ceremony or big noting or any form of ego. Darren Hossack's one of the most down-to-earth, real people that I've ever met in Australian motorsport. Now, for many of you, you'll know him from his time racing V8 supercars with wins and Gary Dumbrell and Gibson Motorsport, but there's much more to talk about with Hoss. From the sports sedan Saab and Audi, not to mention the rotary Gemini as well, plus forays into Speedway, his long-time involvement in the karting scene, and all sorts of cars and projects in between, Darren's motorsport story is really cool. He's still involved too. He's doing some racing in a Mazda RX-2, working on cars and components. He's a two-time national champ, don't forget, too, in sports sedans. He won in super karts, karts back in the day. He's won in just about everything he's been in, and he's tried pretty much everything that's got four wheels. And he's passing on what he's learned from that journey to the next generation as well. Enjoy this one. I had a real ball catching up with this guy. It's part one of Darren Hossack on the V8 Salute podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care. Darren Hossack, hello and welcome. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's been a while. <laughs> just, just a little while, mate. Just a little while. Uh, tell our listeners, where are we right now recording this? Um, well, we're actually sitting in my garage, my workshop, where I... Uh... It's not just any garage, though. There's, there's some cool stuff in here. There's some cool stuff, not a lot of memorabilia, but I've got my RX2 race car out there and um, got a sports sedan that I'm building for Michael Robinson. So um, a lot of machines, mills, welders, all the all the usual stuff. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. It's a perfect place actually to sit down and, and do this. It's it's uh, it's racy without being memorabiliary. So yeah, yeah, it is. It's I refer to it as my happy place when I'm out here with a TIG welder in my hand or something. You know, life's pretty good at that point. <laughs> so for someone who's you've been around motorsport for so long now, whether it was the karting stuff, the V8 stuff, what you're doing now, and we'll touch on that over the course. There's so many things for us to talk about here in this podcast. This might be an epic. I hope you didn't have lots planned today because I reckon we're going to have to cover some <laughs> some serious ground. But really what's prompted this one is a couple of things. I saw you late last year at the Gibson Motorsport reunion that they had in, in Melbourne and we did talk about, hey, we should get together and, and do one of these. It took like 12 months, just disappeared like that. Yeah. And then the next thing I know, you were posting some stuff about your career on Facebook that's really growing legs and taken off and we thought – Gee, we better get around to doing this before you tell all the stories on your Facebook page. Yeah, that's right. That that was um, that honestly came about. Mel cleaned the carpets while I was away racing my Mazda at Phillip Island, and there was a couple of photos sitting by the back door. And she said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "Oh, we'll just chuck them out." And she's like, "No, no, put them in the shed. People like that old stuff, you know." Um, photo of me in the supercar at um, at Calder. So I just put a photo up on Facebook and, and you know, this is what it was. And then next minute, yeah, it just it went wild. So it, it was never a plan of, you know, trying to generate business or reinvent myself or anything like that. It was, it just sort of happened. And now it's, um, yeah, it's been pretty humbling, the amount of people that have, that have taken an interest in it. It's a, a really cool story, your motor racing story, because you, you've done a bit of everything, on the tools, off the tools, in the car, out the car, um, carts right through to the Bathurst 1000 V8 supercars and everything just about in between. So where does the motor race – and there's so much to cover and we'll try to get through as much of it as we can. But where does the motor racing bug get you? Did it get you way back when? 
Um, well, my dad used to race cars um, sort of at club level. Um, you know, I just remember going to Winton in the late 70s. He had a Group A sports car. So I guess uh, I wouldn't say I was always destined to race cars. Um, I actually probably had more of an interest in carts when I was young and Graham Ritter had a shop up in Bayswater and I'd go and peer in the window, ride my bike up there. So really when I was old enough to be able to afford a go-kart and also get it to the track, um, I bought a cart and that would have been in uh, uh, eighty-eight. that mm. would have been. Um, and, yeah, it sort of went from there and, yeah, as I say, cars were never really on the agenda, on the agenda other than I worked with Mike Borland who built Spectrum Formula Ford. Was that first card of yours from the trading post by any chance? It was from the trading <laughs> post. Um, I bought it from a guy called Mark Vakuzic who I still know um, to this day and um, it actually was – I wanted a Clubman, a Yamaha RS, but – you know, you get the trading post and there was four of them in there and you'd ring them up and they are all sold and that. And in the end I got fed up and I just bought a Yamaha J. But it worked out to be a good thing because it had less power and it, it taught me to, you know, try and drive nice and smoothly. So if memory serves and from – the great thing is by you doing all your Facebook posts in recent times, you've actually helped jog the memory to be able to do the notes for pods like this. But was Peter Macro one of your first – Backers back in the day, way back. Yeah, when. he was. Um, so actually, what happened with uh, with Peter? How I, I mean, I knew Peter obviously from racing, uh, his racing career. Um, he didn't know me, but I was racing at um, at Ballarat one day, and the week prior, I'd had a big off in the in the sand, and I cleaned the cart up and everything. Everything was good, but I didn't do anything with the engines. So I've gone to Ballarat. And it's Saturday morning practice, and of course, it hadn't. Was it hadn't? Yeah, 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 on the on the side of the hill, and of course, the engine wouldn't run. So Peter had his trailer there, and you know he was good enough to pull the engine apart and rebuild it and everything, and and that was sort of how that relationship sort of struck up. And then um, you know he supported me and built my engines and everything for for many many years, um, and only really stopped because. He got me a job at um, at DPE with Drew Price, and because I was working there, um, probably looking back, it was not. I probably didn't hundred percent do the right thing by Peter there, but I was a bit young and naive. And Drew said, "Oh, look, we'll just give you engines to to race with." And I said, "Okay," um, and and that sort of how that relationship sort of ended with Peter. It was not like I got sick of him or, or you know, he didn't want to do my engines. It was just simply that I worked at DPE. And then years down the track you end up actually driving to Bathurst with his kid, with Adam, later yeah. on. And that's part of the story, I guess, a bit later on. But so you did your apprenticeship but you packed that in. Yeah, toolmaking apprenticeship, which um, it has some relevance to the sort of thing in a way. Yeah, it, it does. Like, um, I sort of, I guess, I didn't really know what I wanted to do um, when I left school, but fortunately, I got a toolmaking apprenticeship, and I did um, my first year at Repco Training Centre, which was in Richmond. That was an accelerated year, so you're with uh, young guys from all different companies, and. Um, you know, it was effectively like four years of TAFE in, in one year sort of thing. <laughs> and um, and then I went and did the, the remaining three years at Hilton Tooling in Glen Waverley. Um, but once I got my go-kart, you know, looking back, I wasn't the greatest employee. <laughs> I just wanted to race go-karts. Were you ever there? No, I was, but the boss was pretty adamant. He wanted everyone to work 50 hours a week um, and you had to work. I think 38 was the, the normal, maybe 40. Um, so I was 40 and not a minute more. I was at the mm. go-kart track. <laughs> <laughs> got testing to do, got races to do, got titles to win. Exactly. Fair play, fair play. So you pack that in and you end up at Drew Price Engineering. So it's DPE. For, for those who might be more car racing people and karting people, DPE is Drew Price Engineering, so well known in the, the karting world. And, of course, Drew transcends both karts and Cars, because he was in, in both over the journey as a competitor as well. But um, was it that they needed someone for a couple of weeks and you stayed for a bunch of years? Is that how it worked out? Yeah, that was pretty much it. Um, uh, Darren Price, who who worked there, um, 
I can't remember what happened if he was going on holidays or something like that. And um, Peter had said, oh, look, Drew needs someone for two weeks just for literally packing boxes, you know, parts in boxes and shipping it out. And I wasn't obviously working. So I said, yeah, yeah, I can, I can go and do that. So I met with Drew and, um, yeah, that was uh, that was probably around 1990, I would say. Mm. And then, um, yeah, that I was there for for many many years up until you know the supercar thing started effectively. Went for two weeks, stayed for seven years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> one of, well, it was you know it was a good place, really good place to work. It was quite small back then. There was maybe eight to twelve staff. Um, and yeah, not a lot of people, and obviously that business, um, which is Arrow Go Karts, that that morphed into I think maybe forty five people at its at its peak. Mm. So what was the the Mike Ball and was he at Drew Prices when you guys? Yeah, you ended up driving the Spectrum in Formula Ford, but is that where the connection? First came? Yeah, so Mike was, Drew was racing Formula Holden and Mike was running the Formula Holden for him. Um, but Mike's Formula Ford business was, you know, well, he had one car effectively and he'd run Steve Richards in 91 in the Spectrum 04. And I remember at the end of lunch one day, he just said to me, Oh, would you be interested in driving my car next year? And, um, I thought, oh, well, why not? You know, um, it wasn't a free drive. Um, you know, I had to to pay a lot of the bills and that. But you know, looking back, it effectively was a free drive. As close, it was all, it was free without being free. It's as close as you can. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, Mike didn't have a, a a ton of money, and neither did I. But you know, we sort of pulled together and and sort of made it happen. And didn't just make it happen, but you won the Vic. Championship, did you not? State yeah, series. Yeah, we won the won the state level. Um, and that was sort of what we did. We did a couple of national rounds, uh, one at Sandown and one at Malala, but but largely just focused on the on the state level racing and yeah, we were lucky enough to win that. So by this stage, is the thought there of I could actually go somewhere with this race driving thing, or is it a case of something right in front of me, we can do it, let's go do it, or is there a grander plan here? Because it tends to be in that era asking guys now, generally not. It's kind of just the next thing to do and it just led somewhere. Was that the case for you? Yeah, 100%. You know, you got to remember too back then that the people that were in touring cars of the time were the Peter Brocks, the Dick Johnsons, the Alan Moffats, None of us guys racing carts ever thought we were going to be those guys or that mm. those guys would, you know, eventually move over. So certainly for me running Formula Ford was a chance to to race a car, but it was never a grand plan that that it would lead to anything and, and nor was karting. I just wanted to race, you know. Um, and in fact, at the end of 1992, um, you know, I was spending, you know, pretty much my whole wage just to run the Formula Ford and at that time was, you know, sponsored by Drew with with carts and, and everything. So I sort of said to Michael, look, um, you know, as much fun as it's been, I'd probably rather not continue on and, and have absolutely no money. Two-minute um, noodles can only be fun for so long. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, it was you filling up your car with, you know, 20-cent coins, <laughs> petrol, and, you know, so that um, that that wore thin. Um, so that's why I just did that for the one year. Which probably speaks to w- what I mentioned about that if you were absolutely, I'm going to go and become the next Peter Brock or, you know, drive a Bathurst, Having that chat with Mike probably doesn't happen to go. Oh, look, you know, I sort of, you yeah, know, kind of done. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. You know, it's um, yeah. I just yeah, I never ever in my wildest dreams ever thought that you know I'd ever race at Bathurst or anything like that. It was just not something mm. that was that was thought of. But you know, you just things um, things present themselves, and and then you go and do them. It's very simple, isn't it? But it is. five, five years on from that point, you are racing in a V8 supercar at Bathurst, which we'll, we'll cover off on. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tech. 
Supercars Unforgettable. When we do these podcasts, as we call out to our followers on social media for questions to roll on in. And we got a bunch and we'll cover them in our National Motor Racing Museum Catch Racer questions in part two. But one of them came in on Instagram from a young fellow you might remember. He's kind of famous these days. <laughs> he, he's got one more gold logie than you and I put together. Ah. He is a rev head like you wouldn't believe. But he said, and tell me if you remember this or not, Grant Denyer said that you took him to the kart track for his first session and gave him some invaluable lessons when he was about 14. Do you remember yep, that? Yeah. True? That is true. Yeah. That is true. Um, yeah, so Drew was uh, friends with Grant's dad. Um, I'm not sure how or at what level or anything. Um, and Drew would ask me, um, you know, would I take this kid to the track and just, you know. You're, him- you're, you're a trusted guy who knew your stuff who – if, if someone was sort of put with you, that you could guide them the right way. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know if it was sort of, um, you know, like driving. It was probably just how to run a go-kart, you know, this is how you do the tyre pressures and this is the tuning and all the, you know, just how you can go to the track and not hurt yourself and others. <laughs> or you blow know, it up. Or blow it up. It, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I remember going to, uh, going to Oakley with Grant and um, – yeah, it's um I don't know what we what we learned or, or what he learned that day, but you know, he, he went on to obviously do uh, quite a few good things in cars. So um yeah, I, I can't take the credit for it though. <laughs> <laughs> Australia's favourite game show host. I think he's trademarked that term these days. I think he's trademarked that. So you go back to the karting thing. Who are you racing in carts that our listeners would know at the time? Who are some of the people that went and did cars or were really well known in carts. Who are we talking? Who's your vintage of your era? So I guess the the, the guys that went on to do a bit more um, were obviously Craig Lowndes. Now, Craig was in juniors when I was in seniors, but we used to – I'm not saying we used to go racing together, but we'd do the country series. He raced junior national heavy. I ran junior, uh, senior national light, effectively the same weight and everything. So – um, our he was a good reference in terms of lap times and that. And um, then there was Jason Bright. Um, he uh, he was racing at that time. Who else? Steve Richards, of course. Um, there was obviously people racing that were younger than me that I didn't race against. Guys like uh, uh, Jamie Winkup, Will Davison, Will's brother Alex. Um, Alex or the, the Davison people were involved with with Drew as well, um, so yeah, I spent many a you know race meeting pitting with the Davisons. Um, yeah, there was there was quite a few people. Um, once again, they don't all spring to mind, mm. but um, yeah, it was. I guess we were probably the first. Uh, Steve White's another one um, that you know went on to do quite a bit of stuff. Not so much in supercars, but. Yeah, we were probably the first people to come through after the the Brocks and the Johnsons and everything. You know, I'd probably say that the first ones were were Steve White, Craig Lowndes and and Steve Richards. They were the first carters of my era that broke into, you know, Mm. high-level car racing. Yeah. There's a good era. There's some good names in among there and then there's plenty of other ones that were probably talented enough to go somewhere but it just didn't work out. There's always those in sort of every era. The thing that blew me away when I sat down and went through your timeline of your career and what you've done. So you won, was it 94 national championship first karting? Yeah, Reed Light in 1994 at at Bolivar. That was my first nationals, yep. And then your second one was two years later. Yeah, 1996 at Smithton in Tasmania in Clubman Light. So... I'm not sure what part of the year was that Nationals in 96. So the Nationals were always at Easter. Right. Um, so it's only been recent times that karting has gone to a you know five-round championship. It was always Rather a, than a one-off. A, a one event yeah. and one race, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to be national champion was obviously fantastic, but you had to be good in one race. That was That's yeah. what it came yeah. down to. Yeah. So the thing that blows my mind, so we're talking March, April, whenever Easter was in 96. 
12 months later, you're in a V8 supercar on the grid with Brock and Johnson and Perkins and Ingle and Murphy and Alan Jones and, you know, you could go through the entry yeah. list of, of blokes. Huh? Yeah, I'd never actually stop. When it. you look at it that way, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, yeah, once again, look, I think um, so I'd, I'd met because I was well, – I won't say because I was national champion, but – I'd met Gary Dumbrell um, through Graham Blanchard, who who um, was the fabricator at, at Drews. He'd actually met Gary. Gary had his young boy Paul racing carts and needed some help, you know, with everything karting. And at that time, um, I had a Gemini sports sedan that had a 13B um, peripheral I remember it well. rotary I in remember it. I remember it, yeah. Um, once again, couldn't afford to run it. You know, took a took a loan from RACV to buy the thing. Did, and did you do the bugs and lie what the loan was for? Well, I never lied. I'm not big on lying, but I never didn't told them. Um, <laughs> didn't but, tell the full truth. But I had to because they wanted to know what the VIN number was, and that that was a hurdle that I couldn't get over without fessing up to. Them. I was going to so, say because it didn't have one. Because it's not a road it car. didn't have one. It had a cheap <laughs> chassis. So anyway, look, I, I remember I went and saw the guy and said, look, this is how it is. And effectively they gave me the loan. He said, look, we've never loaned anyone money for a racing car before. Um, but they did it. First time for and, everything. And, yeah, I paid it off and everything like that. And um, so when I met Gary. But, uh, what, did, but did you, I think you wrote about this on your social posts at the, about this era. Did you not put as finance against that loan your girlfriend at the time's car and her mum's? Yeah, I didn't just do it. Um, you, t- you talked to them about it. Yeah, though. I yeah, talked yeah. to them. Um, yeah, he, the 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 guy at, um, at RACV had said, look, we can give you the money if you've got some sort of collateral. Well, I didn't have a lot of things to my name um, and, yeah, I'm not sure how it worked out, but they agreed that, <laughs> that I think it was their cars or something. I, I don't know. Oh, but, um, I mean, there was never any danger that they were yeah, going to lose yeah, their cars yeah. or anything like that. But, <laughs> but yeah, so that's how I got that car um, and I raced it um, quite a few times on a absolute shoestring budget, you know, like – draining the fuel out of the tank of the race car to put in the road car to, you know, make it from Benalla back to Yay, and then how you get home from there, you worry about at the time, all, all of that sort of stuff, you know. Was this another classifieds buy, by the way? No, <laughs> no. Um, but, look, it was – that car was really good in that um, – I used to cut it up all the time and, you know, sort of probably ruined a perfectly good racing car. But in terms of fabrication, that was one of the first cars that taught me how to fabricate, Um, you know, how suspension worked, how to make a car good, how to make it bad. Um, I probably spent more time making it bad than good. But either way, you're (laughs) still learning. You're still learning. Yeah, Yeah, it was good. Yeah. So the the Gemini is what, 95, 96 sort of? Period? Yeah, 95, 96. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and because I had that car when I met Gary Dumbrell, um, he said, can you help me with my boy Paul? I said, yep. Um, can you sponsor my race car? That'll be a, a good trade-off. And I remember because the car was black, you know, it was pretty simple. Well, the car's black. You've got Autobahn. It'll be, a, you know, it'll be an easy match. And Gaz said, look, I won't sponsor your car, but what I'll do, I'll just pay you for the days that, that you work, um, which I think I probably shouldn't, you know, disclose money, but it was a long time ago. It might have been $250 a day, which back in 1996 was, you know, for a young bloke, that was pretty mm. reasonable. If you went racing for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it was it was not a bad earner. Mm. So, um, so that was good. And sort of around that period of time, I was sort of friends with Brad and Kim Jones as well. I wouldn't say, oh, I'll say friends, you know, but um, I'd raced in Albury in carts quite a bit because I was, I was pretty chummy with Nathan Pretty. And, um, you know, he had his shop up in Albury. So I'd go up there and um, I think I'd take an engine and tyres and he'd give me a go kart and, you know, happy days sort of thing. And Brad was racing and Kim at that time up there in carts. So I got, you know, a bit friendly with them. And, and Brad and Kim had always said, oh, we'll give you a drive of the Audi one day. And you, 
you know, the two litre car, and you never really think much of it. You don't. They're just being nice. Yeah, it's they're a nice just, thing to they're say. They're just being and, nice, yeah, but yeah. yeah, true to their word, they did. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So just before we get into the, the Dumbrell chapter, because it's a. There's people along the way who make a difference in a career like yours, and, and Gary was clearly a huge one, huge one. A lot of other people have played a part along the journey. Just if we talk, wasn't there an issue where with that Gemini, I just want to cover this off before we jump into the V8 era, wasn't there an issue that happened in karting that affected your racing because there was a, there was yeah. an engine irregularity somewhere along the way, not yeah. your fault, it just happened, but it meant you lost your licence and you lost the chance to win the sports event was under two litre. No, it was, it was, uh, um, I'm pretty sure I was leading and it might've only been after one race, but I was, Still I was leading Still the, the state championship, um, for sports sedans. Um, it would have been in, in 1996. And I was also racing carts at the time and we'd race the Victorian open. I'm going to say it at Albury, Albury Wodonga track, and I didn't even win. I ran. I ran third. So I was current national champion, but but ran third. And um, so engine goes to engine measuring, and the head volume, the CCs were were under by you know like we're talking ten point nine eight or something, you know. So that then goes to a tribunal, and you know you know you're going to get rubbed out. There's no you know I didn't build the engine. Um, it was just an honest mistake. David Price had done the engine, but. You know, the cylinder head gets a bit of carbon in it and all of a sudden you go under. So the end result was when you lose your karting licence, you lose your cams licence. And I pretty much said, look, take my karting licence. I don't need it. I'm, um, I just want to race. I want to, you know, keep racing my car. And, um, you know, I even use Brad Jones as a reference. Well, what are you going to do if Brad goes under with his engine CCs? Are you going to take his licence off him and he can't race his... His two-litre car and, yeah. and all of that. Well, that just sort of fell on deaf ears, yeah. so I lost my licence for three months. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Uh, so the let's cover off the, the Audi thing because that was – I feel like we're delaying the V8 thing, but we'll keep all that together because yep. there's so much to, to go back into. So Brad and Kim have run the Audis for a couple of years by that stage – They've run Brad and Greg Murphy. Murph's gone to replace Craig Lowndes at the Holden Racing Team. Yep. So they got a seat for 97. And I vividly remember the magazine story and some telly stuff where they gave four guys, yourself, Darren Pate, Christian Jones and Cam McConville, a test out at yep. Calder Park. I think it was like really early in the year, like a summer sort of it time. It was hot. I remember it was hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the thing that I think is a commonly held view for many is that it wasn't really a shootout for a drive, was it? It wasn't a shootout for a drive. And and to be fair to Brad and Kim, they'd never told me that it was. They'd never said, hey, you've got a, an opportunity to run the car next year. Um, they'd always said, we'll give you a drive of the car. Mm. Now, then you hear that, you know, these other guys are, are driving and, and they need a driver for next year. And, and Gary um, had said to me, I'll, I'll give you some money. And I remember being so naive. I said, no, no, they never talked about needing any money, you know. He was meaning to buy the drive. You're thinking yeah. to have the test. Well, I, I didn't or know anything, I, anything. or anything. I'm like, oh, they, you know, Brad hasn't talked to me about money. I don't. And uh, if Bradley's going to talk to you about money, he will talk to you about money. Absolutely. He, Bradley yeah. loves money. So I remember I went out there. Um, well, I'd never driven at Calder, so I I. Uh, Gary owned a Mazda one two one of all things that Melinda Price had oh, raised from the one make series. From the one make series, so I remember towing that thing out there and and cutting some laps and just learning the track and um, yeah, sort of on the day, just saying to, to Brad, I don't know if this means anything, but you know, it might have been a hundred grand or something, which you know, it's a lot of money even today. Um, don't know if this this makes any difference or whatever, but. I've got some money. Um, but, yeah, obviously it had sort of – it was a bit of a PR thing more than than to find a driver and, and Cam had already been chosen that, that he was going to drive the car. Um, so – but it was a good – it was a good day. Um, I'd, I'd really only driven Formula Ford and my sports sedan. So 
I would, you know, looking back, I, you know, I was well underneath what the car was capable of and everything. I mean, the, your number one thing is you don't want to crash the car. Mm. Um, so, but it was a good experience and it, it sort of led into, you know, what was to follow with V8s. It's a tick the box. You were part of it. It was there. People remember it still, which is funny, isn't it? You know, 26 years old or whatever we are yeah. now. People, and I think that super touring era, it's kind of having a little comeback in people's brains because it's been far enough away that, They've sort of forgotten about a lot of it and now some of it starts to uh, to come on back. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. So we've met Gary Dumbrell and his son, Paul. Paul's carding, needs some help. Darren, you're the man. Help my kid. I'll pay you. Off you go. Happy days. So how do we go from carding to suddenly let's buy a V8 supercar? Because it's a bit of a step, you got to say. Yeah, it, it was. But if, you know... What I'll say too is I'd met John Faulkner at this time and he was running his NASCARs and Oscars out of initially a factory next door to Drew's, so pretty much race cars next door. I'm and, going there every lunchtime. And they had driven together for the factory Toyota team that's, back in the day. There was the link there. Yeah, that's right. So him and Drew had driven together, as you said, and also – he and Gary Dumbrell had also driven yeah, together. escorts back in the day. Yeah. Escorts. Capri, and and yeah. um, so there was a bit of a link there. So um, what happened with after the Audi test, I said to Gary, well, why don't we just get our own car and we'll go and do it ourselves? Once again, pretty naive to <laughs> what a big step that was going to be. But, hey, I've run a Gemini sports sedan. How, how hard uh, can it be, be to run a yeah. Super Tourer? And um, I remember going to Gary Rogers and, and met with Steve Richards and, you know, every second word out of Steve's mouth was Europe. You know, you send the engine back to Europe, the gearbox. Are, I'm thinking all so this. So the initial plan was Super Tourer, not yeah. Super Car. Yeah, Super yeah. Tourer um, because Steve, there was not a lot of cars sort of for sale at that time, So, but but uh, Gary Rogers had the Primera for sale that, that Steve had been running and... I guess I was probably a little bit daunted by the fact of sending everything overseas and couldn't do much yourself. Yeah. yeah. So oh, they were going to run the Nissan that year, and they had the Honda. That's right. They had the Honda. They had yeah, the Honda. That's right. That's um, right. But they also had a supercar for sale. Mm. And um, may we interest you in this car in the corner, please, sir? Well, yeah. It was. I don't know. I don't. Steve was not trying to initiate the sale with that car but it just seemed to be that that car was for sale jf was now racing um you know supercars himself and he he had a bigger factory which was just around the corner from from drew's and um and it sort of all made sense that that john could run the car i don't know i probably never even asked john i probably just pieced all this together and put it to gaz and um Sounded like a good thing at a time and uh, at the time. And there was one stipulation though to buy the car, and that was that we had to go to Calder and Richo had to do a 58 something, anything in the 58s. Prove that that it's not a dunger and it's got good bits in it. It's got the good bits in it. And I can tell you now, I remember like it was yesterday, standing there with my stopwatch. 59, 59, 59, like, and eventually Steve came in and he's like, that's as fast as it's going to go. I'm not driving it anymore. And we hadn't done the magic 58. So we drove home and Gaz said, well, what do you think? What am I going to say? I'm not going to say, no, don't buy the car. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, So eventually, look, the deal was done. I think the car was 120 grand or something. He said to me, Daz, this is the most money I've ever spent on a racing car. And um, yeah, we got the car, and it went to went to John Faulkner's. I remember it vividly because it had the red interior, yeah, which was ex Gibson Winfield yep. era that Steve had driven in '96 in his first year in V8s with the Valvoline's coming sponsorship for for Gaz's place, and it retained that red interior when it was the Wind's car. So it was very distinct on which car that was over the the little journey there. So so. 
a lot's happened since we've won this second national karting title in Easter 96. So within 12 months, tested a Super Tourer, gone and done a deal to buy a V8, and suddenly we're off to go in what is then a new world of V8 supercars. It's just been renamed at the time from well, five litres, V8s, Group A, whatever it was, you know, everyone had a different yeah. name for it. But am I right in remembering that the plan wasn't to go and do the thing full time, it was just to pick a few here and there and just do a couple? Yeah. I, events, that is. I think, um, look, Gary probably never really talked to me a lot about what we were going to do, um, but I, I, I pretty sure we didn't ever intend on doing every single round. Oh, I probably didn't. He didn't. Um, but the first round was um, the day-night event at Calder. Mm. Um, and once again, my level of experience at Calder at this point was, you know, a few laps in Brad's Audi and Melinda Price's Mazda 121. So, so you're a Calder expert. Yeah. It was, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was my home <laughs> track. Um, and, um, yeah, and we didn't. We didn't sort of go out there prior and practice. So the first time I'd ever driven a V8 supercar was literally in the first practice session, um, you know, of the first event. <laughs> Looking back now, God, what was I what thinking? What were you thinking, Dad? <laughs> oh, my God. It's crazy. It's crazy when you're stopping. But at the time, you're in the moment, you're doing it, this is coming, we're on, we're doing this, we've got this car. You're not thinking or looking at any of that no, type of not, stuff, which is quite hilarious. You're not thinking it. And it was a different time, you know. Mm. People weren't, you know, even when I ran Formula Ford, you know, the big kids that do more laps in their Formula Ford before they ever go and race and what I did in Formula Ford all year, races, mm. practice, all of that, It's yeah. it was just a different time back then. What um, what did Gary, what did Gary see? He clearly... Showed massive loyalty to you, not just in racing, but in life as in well. Life, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. And, and sadly, we've lost him now. But what do you think he saw in you that he liked so much? That because people along the way, I said it before about people that make a difference. But it takes benefactors, sponsors, someone who opens a door, pays some money, introduces you to someone. Why did he? Why do you think he? sort of went, Darren Hossack's yeah. my guy. I like Darren Hossack. I'm going to back him and we're going to do some stuff. I don't I don't fully know why. Um, I think, look, I was probably a bit of an older brother to Paul along the way, um, which which helped, you know, not not just at the at the cart track and with racing, but just with things in life. I remember we went and bought him a push bike and, you know, all of that. Did he fall off of, that one? Um, he was a bit accident prone. He was, wasn't, wasn't he? He? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he probably did. Um, but yeah, I don't know. And and look, probably whilst I wasn't as old as Gary, I was probably close enough in age that that sort of we could relate to similar things, you know. So yeah, I don't know. We we just really got along well, you know. Um, just I enjoyed his company. I guess he enjoyed mine and. I never, you know, I've never to this day, and someone might come back and correct me on this, but I've never ever asked for money or anything. Even when Gary the first, you know, buying the supercar and all came up, I didn't, I didn't sort of openly ask could he spend the money. It mm. was he was he was driving it. He yeah, was, he was yeah. he was driving it, and I was you know I was sort of somewhere at the back near the rudder trying to steer it. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got a V8 supercar. We've got wins on it. It's number 45. It's being run by John Faulkner Racing in Oakley. He was 46, so I guess that's yep. why the number it was just easy to have two numbers together. Yeah, yeah. You've gone to call it under the, the lights, the day night, first round of the Shell Australian Touring Car Championship, as it was then known, the first of the V8 supercar era championships because the name had, had changed. And then you end up doing the whole year and there's a change later in the year that we'll, we'll cover off, but – that's at a time when we don't have a controlled tyre. Everyone's, there's Bridgestones, Yokohama, Dunlops, but then there's customer there's Dunlops. Customer and Dunlops. you've got customer Dunlops, not Flash. Yeah, look, I mean, you never know what you haven't got until you sort of try something else. But, 
Yeah, so how it worked was you couldn't just choose what tyre you wanted to, to be on. If you were um, a privateer as we were, well, the only tyre you could physically buy was a was a Dunlop tyre. Now, not to, you know, it wasn't a bad tyre by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it didn't have the development that the tyres that, you know, say Dick Johnson, Larry Perkins, mm. that those guys were using um and you know bridgestone they they weren't interested in selling tires to you know the likes of us they just had their their people that they'd chosen um that they were going to supply tires to and i think you know jf had bridgestones because he'd bought a holden racing team car and that was obviously part of the deal that, that sort of came with it so yeah look looking back it's not ideal because you even though I didn't go to the track thinking, oh, this is going to be a battle. I've got customer Dunlops. I didn't even know, you know. I'm mm. just going there to race a V8 supercar and whatever. <laughs> as long as the tyres are holding the wheels off the ground, <laughs> I don't care, you know. <laughs> what um, – in those days they had the privateers dashes that you were right among. So there's John Faulkner, Mark Poole's in there, Terry yep. Finnegan. Terry Finnegan yeah. A great group of privateers that it was really competitive but – did anyone, apart, you know, clearly JF was a, was a big help, but did anyone sort of take you aside and help you out or was everyone a bit uh, eager to go find out for himself? Um, not really. Um, certainly not in the privateers. I mean, John was very good to me with the advice and help that, that he gave me. Um, I was probably a hindrance to him looking back. You know, if I was, you know, he hadn't been in supercars that long himself. So, you know, looking back now, I was probably more of a hindrance to him than anything else, but he never showed it. Um, Peter Brock came up to me one day at driver's briefing, I remember, at Eastern Creek, and he sat down next to me and he said, it. you know, I reckon you can drive, you know, and sort of from that moment, I'm not going to say we were besties or anything, <laughs> but, you know, I was able to talk to him about things, um, not undermining John in, in any way, but Peter had a different, you know, way of looking at things. Um, not saying that one was right and one was wrong, but it was good to have someone else's perspective on things, even even things like dealing with media and stuff like that, you know. Um, so our chats weren't always about, you know, turn in here, hit the apex here, you know, get on the gas here. Though Quite often they were about things that were not racing related but more life related sounds you know? like brock does it, sound like 100 sounds like brock it wasn't there it wasn't there a link because that gemini that you had in the sports sedans wasn't that originally built for him or something along those lines yeah i don't know the full backstory behind that but it was built for him and um with a turbo holding six in it and i had met him racing at um when i was racing it at winton one day and the super tourists were there i think he was probably racing the volvo at the time um and he actually went out of his way to come up and have a look at it so um so i had met him prior but i can't remember if even when we started talking in the supercar era even if he made that connection that you I were the guy the with the gemini i had that car yeah <laughs> was it that and things changed Later on in the year with, with Gibson Motorsport and Scafe departing, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec, but wasn't it the original plan that you were going to share your car with Drew at the Enduros? Yeah, that was um, that was the plan um, because Paul was racing karts and Drew was quite heavily involved in karting still back then. So, so Gary and Drew, I guess, knew each other. Um, and had probably met each other prior with the, you know, the John Faulkner connection anyway. Um, and Drew had taught me a lot in life, karting, you know, a lot of the things I, you know, when I work with people these days, the stuff that Drew had taught me, you know, I remember him getting into me because I came back, you know, with dirty tyres one day, I'd driven offline and, well, let me tell you, you only do that once and <laughs> Drew lets you know about it. But they were good lessons in life. So... It sort of made sense um, that, you know, Drew would be a perfect person to to team up with to go to Bathurst. Drew was not trying to further his racing career, um, so he was going to be someone that was going to be really good to, you know, to continue teaching me. But um, 
as I'm sure you'll probably get to, it never panned out. Mm. We mentioned JF and he was learning at the time. He'd been Oscar NASCAR, made the move to, to V8s, takes in a customer car. Um, he was kind of the, the privateer of privateers. Like he was the, the guy that was generally getting the top privateer trophy at the end, yeah, of, a, yeah. a, end of a weekend. Um, I've always had a great relationship with, with JF. He's, he's a ripper. He's a racer's racer, like oh, you wouldn't yeah, believe. 100%. Um, what, what sort of a ship, like people think of a supercar team now as full time, 20 plus people for, and you know, more for the bigger teams. What's JFR in 1997 in was it Edinburgh Street, I think, in yeah, Oakley South, was it? Street. Um, look, for me, it was still a pretty um, flash operation. You know, it, it had, you know, nicely painted floor and walls and everything. Um, you know, to run one then two cars out of it was a it was quite a big um, shed factory whatever. It had a fabrication department and everything like that. Didn't have huge numbers because um, I guess JF didn't have the budget to be mm. able to, you know, employ a lot of people. Although he did employ people. Um, Barry Ryan worked there for. For a while, that's sort of where he got his start, which ironically he'd actually, I won't say done his apprenticeship, but I knew Barry from karting and he'd worked for Peter Macro. Um, so It's yeah. a small world, isn't it? It is a small world, the you know. Yeah. Um, but no, look, it was it was good and Les Small was, was involved there as well. So, um, yeah, there were some good people involved, there's, there's no question. But... Um, yeah, I guess. Look, I was I was inexperienced. The car was a different car to John's. The Gibson cars were quite different in in how they were set up, where their fuel tank location was, and all. So, the car probably morphed into a car a bit more like John's over the year, um, but it still had different tires and it had a VR front spoiler, and everyone else was running a VS. Not excuses, but mm, it was just, just it was just a different yeah. car. Yeah, just different. While you're doing this V8 thing, you know, new rookie, well, this is all exciting. What's your job? Uh, are you still working at Drew's? Are you working for well, Gary? There's a bit of a crossover here, wasn't there? There was a line? crossover and there literally was a crossover where um, I don't know why, but Drew didn't want me to leave. I guess he didn't want to have to replace me and um, he couldn't work out what I'd actually be doing for Gary seeing as I was racing cars, you know, some weekends. And I said, I don't know, but Gaz wants me to work for him. Um, and so I think they actually ended up having a, a phone discussion and decided that, you know, I'd do the morning at Gary's. I was living in Frankston, Wins was in Preston and, and DPE was in Clayton. <laughs> so I'd go and do the morning with Gaz and then at lunchtime I'd head over and do the afternoon with Drew and then I'd drive back to Frankston and, yeah, that was a, a short-term thing for <laughs> obvious reasons. I remember... You know, in the art, oh, look, there was always, I was forever ringing Drew saying, mate, I can't make it this afternoon. And, you know, Gaz wants me to do this and do that. And, yeah, eventually Drew said, look, just stay there and do do your thing. Mm. So, um, for, yeah. a, for a two week job helping out, it kind of lasted for a bit longer. Oh, it, it did. Worked it out did. Right. That it worked was, right. yeah, it, it worked out good. And um, once again, you know, I'm not saying I did the wrong thing by Drew, but, Probably if I look back over time, like with Peter Macro, probably I don't know what I could have done differently, but, you know, you're just sort of looking at the next phase. You're mm. not so much probably thinking about what impact you're having on, you know, your current mm. employer. But, I mean, Drew and I still had a good relationship. I don't think there was any issues there. He just didn't know what I'd be doing and I didn't know what I'd be doing. <laughs> but, you know, Paul was running the carts and... and you know, Gaz got me, um, being that he was Victoria's wins distributor, he um, he used me as a, I might say, marketing tool, but, you know, I was demonstrating wins machines and all, you know, going to, you know, car dealers and all of that sort of stuff. So he was going to make sure he got his money's worth out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Covering plenty of ground. I think there may or may not be, and you can answer this, some of those old Wins TV oh. commercials still on YouTube somewhere. Is this true? Yeah, they, unfortunately, they're still there. Now, there's a reason why I've never been on Neighbours or anything like that. I'll, I'll say that. So we've got it sorted out. You're working for Gary. You're driving the Wins supercar. 
It's very rare mid-season that there's a seismic shift in the driver market or a team, but that happened that year because after a couple of cracks, the Holden Racing team finally got Mark Scaife. And the primary reason to begin with was to co-drive with Peter Brock for what was going to be his last, what was his first last Sandown and Bathurst Enduro. So that leaves Gibson Motorsport, and this is before the end of the Touring Car Championship, in the day when the Enduros were a separate yeah. thing, they weren't part of it. So you go from not just in your first year of V8 supercars, you've done, I don't know, what, eight rounds, nine rounds, whatever it is, and then you, your sponsorship, your car owner, end up going to Gibson Motorsport, not for next year, not for Bathurst, but for the last round of the championship at Oran Park. How do you remember how that all came to be, because it was a pretty big deal at the time. Yeah. Um, once again, it wasn't steered by me. Um, Gary had obviously spoken of Fred and and everything. And, um, yeah, I, like I say, I was not really steering anything. You're I at the rudder. Just, You're at the rudder Yeah, again. I'm at the rudder and I'm just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm falling, Where are we going? I'm falling overboard every once in a while, but we're, we're hanging on. And Gaz just said, yeah, look, we'll um, – we're going to run out of Gibson Motorsport. Fred's going to run the team um, sort of effective immediately. And, you know, once again, looking back, you know, John Faulkner was obviously relying on, you know, the money that Gary was paying to run his own car and all. So, yeah, I mean, I was naive to all of that. But looking back now, it, it was, you know, probably less than ideal for John. Um, and I, John was a friend of mine, um, you know, so I didn't feel great about it. But by the same token, you're going to Gibson Motorsport, you know. Um, so that was a big factory, very nicely painted floors. Everything was, you know, very Fred Gibson, mm, you know, very, very clean. Yeah. Um, so it was... Um, yeah, it should have on paper, it should have been a massive step forwards. But this wasn't the Gibson Motorsport of the tobacco era and they'd struggled along for a year with the Seeger car. And, yeah. And they'd not done all the rounds of 97. They were a bit hit and miss with doing a couple here and there. So I guess in Fred's world, a young driver that the team had a history of bringing young drivers through, a sponsor that's bringing some money to help run the show because they were limping at the time with – they had Coopers and Lybrand on the car yeah, at one yeah. stage and the Australian 1000 Classic, which was the new V8 Bathurst race where he started about eight years before everybody else at Eastern Creek that day and <laughs> jumped yeah, the start. Yeah, that's right. That's got a right. bit of PR for it all. So from, from the Gibson end, it made sense. Mark's leaving. They need to keep the doors open and run. In Gary's world, better car, better opportunity here, bit of a step up. So you've gone from just being in your rookie year to suddenly now driving a level one car for Oran Park. And then the Enduros where Steve Allery, who's broken up with Tony Longhurst earlier in the year, and you guys had a history way back when in yeah, karting we too. Were, so all we these circles in karting, come back yeah. together, don't they? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we went and did the Oran Park round. So I guess probably the biggest change was now we had we weren't on a customer tyre anymore. Um, we had Yokohama. And factory Yokohama. Factory. Like, you got the priority here. You got the just, priority. Yeah. And it was definitely um, that year, it was definitely a step forward. You know, like we, I remember going to Oran Park and, you know, I hadn't driven the car prior to Oran Park. It was now, you know, Mark's car, not, not the one I'd been running. Um, so we went to Oran Park and um, you probably know better than me, but I remember we ran inside the top 10, certainly the last race until I, um, flat spotted the tyre coming off the bridge from memory and eventually took it down to canvas and, and was out. But but the, the pace was an improvement on, on what we'd had. Um, so, you know, that was not – I won't say that that's because it was Gibson Motorsport. We were just on better tyres, you know, so it was nothing, nothing against John or anything like that. It was better tyre and it was a better car too mm. than what I'd than what I'd had. Um, so that sort of netted some some better results. Um, and the one good thing that about the Yokohama was their wet was very very good. And when we went to Sandown, it was bucketing I remember. that day. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't pretty. No, and um, we actually ended up. We were running third with 
what I thought was eight laps to go. I can still remember it like it was yesterday. You know, Fred was on the radio and we're running third and he's like, there's eight laps to go, Hossack, and I'm counting them down in my head. Well, I get down to zero and I can't see a chequered flag. Just at that point, Fred comes on the radio and he said, oh, you know, I've stuffed up, Hossack, keep going. Well, <laughs> I aquaplaned at the end of the straight. Well, maybe not aquaplaned, but I put my foot on the brake, I locked the rears and off into the fence and um, anyway, got bogged in it. The dream fell apart and I think we ended up finishing six. But our, our pace was actually really good that day. And you guys went to Bathurst and again, top ten car again. Because there's uh, there a delay there, wasn't it? It was a drive. Just to change the tail oh, shaft or something tail shaft, yeah. I remember Mark Poole was behind me down the straight and um, not that it was his doing or anything, but massive vibration. Well, I'd had this once before in my road car. I was pretty pretty quick to diagnose that the tail shaft had an issue. But when I pulled into the pits, it was because it had happened just before the chase, there was no visual signs of, of any issue. So they put Steve in the car and Steve did a lap and rattled his fillings out and came in and said, yeah, there's definitely a massive vibration. Well, at this point now there was grease all under the car and the bolts had come out of the centre bearing. So, you know, the race was a bit different back then. You could sort of have a problem and you know, you weren't going to get buried for it. Well, we went from a good position to, you know, finishing sixth, which was still, for me, that was a good result. I was a top rookie. So, um, you know, to come away from, from Bathurst sixth, I was pretty comfortable with that. First time out. That's yeah, yeah. never been there in anything before. Well, no, but we'd had done, if you remember, after the, oh, the media Park, day. we yeah. did the media day. So I'd, I had been there and done some laps, um, but I was hardly a seasoned campaigner there. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a really interesting period for Gibson Motorsport. So the fusion of Gary Dumbrell, Wins, Fred, yourself, leads to a, a bigger team for the next year in 98. So there's yourself, Darren Pate joins, who you tested the Audi with the previous yep. year. So you're in the Wins cars, quickly dubbed D1 and D2, the two Darrens. Steve Allery, Stays part of the Gibson world, in but he becomes a young lion with Konica coming in. So it's a three-car Gibson team, and there's all these hopes that this is the rebirth and the relaunch of Gibson in the post-tobacco era, which had had a year or two of being a bit sort of yeah struggling along, yeah. just keeping the doors open. So big opportunity, great-looking cars, three cars, piles of people. But is this the great? And by this stage, so. Are you getting paid to drive a V8 supercar here? Are you still got a day job or what are you doing? Well, I was still working for Gary, so... Driving I, the car is kind of part of... Yeah, that was just... Stuff. You're employed by, you know... Um, I was employed by Gary and I did whatever needed to be done and mm. just driving the racing car was, was part of that. So, yeah, I guess I was professional, but I wasn't professional-like. You know the guys are sort of these days, but where, you weren't paying. But I wasn't paying. Yeah, so I that's the good paying, bit. That's so, the good. Yeah. Bit. That's the good bit. So going into that year, do you remember thinking, "Wow, this is this is a big opportunity here. This is this is going to be fantastic." Um, look, I probably I actually can't really remember what I thought. You got to remember too, like at this point in time. I'm still a reasonably inexperienced mm. racer, you know. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say that my confidence was ever that that I thought I was going to go and show everyone how it was done or, you know, uh, I was probably thought the other way a little bit. Um, but I knew that we had an opportunity to, or at least I thought we had an opportunity where we could certainly get some better results. Now, I didn't expect to win a race um, probably, but, you know, I would have liked to have thought that, you know, if everything lined up on, on its day, we'd run in the top five or something like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, we went into that year, I think, all of us thinking that it was going to be a, you know, a, a strong year. And it wasn't. And it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it look, it... It didn't pan out as good as it, it could have hoped and, you know, I won't sit here and make up excuses and everything like that. As I said, I was 
I was still inexperienced as a racer. I seemed to spend, you know, most of our races, I was racing Steve Allery and Darren Pate. You know, mm. we were all stuck together on the racetrack. And um, whilst I'll say the results at times weren't terrible, they certainly weren't on paper. We weren't getting better. I think that was the big thing, you know, is that as the year went on, the results weren't improving. Mm. So there was a point there, um, I think it was after the Perth round where ironically I'd been top privateer. Um, uh, I'm sorry, not top privateer. That must have been the year before. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting my years mixed up there. But, um, yeah, Gary had, Gary had made the decision that, he was going to put Thomas Mazira in the car. Who'd done a bit of testing to try to help you previously um, from going back through the magazines. I think he might have had a little drive just to get another opinion of someone experienced. Yeah, he, he might have had a drive. Uh, and because didn't Scaife drive yeah, the Ellery he, car? He, that, drove, he must have done that a little bit quietly. Yeah, I know. Looking back, I, I don't know how that sort of worked. Look, I'd say that Holden Racing Team knew about it and it was probably a favour to Fred more mm. than anything. Um, because I doubt that he would have risked rocking the mm. boat at Holden Racing Team to come and drive, you know, one of our cars. But um, that didn't look nothing. We did Thomas driving the car, all of that. Nothing seemed to make the cars any better, you know. Mm. And there was a probably an underlying reason as to why that was. Um, but yeah, were they were they the things on the four corners of the car more than anything? Well, like I say, I don't like to throw stones, but let's just say in that period, if you didn't have a Bridgestone, you were probably going to struggle. You know, there was times when the Dunlop um, they had their days too. They had period. their days yeah, too, with, but but Yokohama by that stage, um, it's pretty much Gibsons and Tony Longest and Tony, Tony jump ship. I yeah. think in Perth, he went to Dunlop from there on for the rest of the year. Yeah, it was – what about um, – yeah, so Wayne Gardner had been on Yokohama's prior. Um, yep, but he, by that stage, he wasn't in V8s. He wasn't in V8s, he closed, yeah. He closed his team. Yeah, that's right. So it was pretty much Gibson's Longhurst with Alan Jones in the Komatsu car, but they swapped to Dunlops anyway before the end of the championship. A few privateers here and there on Yokies, but yeah. that was it. Yeah, to be fair to Yokohama, look, they they didn't have the incentive, I guess, to keep pouring bucket loads of money into one or two teams, you know, so why would they continue developing? Mm. So, um, yeah, like I say, it's it, it's just how it was and, um, yeah, you know, there was plenty of other reasons why, you know, I wasn't the world's greatest driver. I'm sure Patey and Steve Allery would agree that that period of their life too, they weren't the world's greatest drivers. Mm. So um, it just, the whole lot never really netted the results that we were hoping it would. So the Perth round late in 98 is kind of the last run you get and then the call comes that Thomas is going to take over your car for the next couple of rounds. But Perth 98 wasn't all bad. Was it Darren? No, it wasn't. It wasn't all bad because I um I happened to meet Mel, my now wife there. So it was, um, it was good. It was you know that and, was and, and it wasn't just that you met her while you're in Perth. You met her at the track, did you not? I met her at the track. Um, tell the story. Come on now. Uh, she came to. Well, she probably tells it better than me. She came. I either gave her a hat or something. It was it was actually she wanted a hat for her brother, I found out later, but I signed it to her. So um, anyway, so um, I I happened to um, get her business card, which she gave me because she was a photographer. And the long and the short of it is we um, I rang her and, and we sort of, Gaz said to me after the event, he said, you know, you should stay back and take her out to dinner, take her anywhere she wants to go. Money's no object. Well, <laughs> yeah, we had hard a hard time finding a place that was, um, you know, ritzy enough. She obviously, you know, Mel's Mel doesn't need expensive things, so she didn't need an expensive restaurant or anything. So, um, yeah, I, I stayed back and um, we stayed in touch after after the event. And it wasn't until Bathurst when I had a crash in qualifying and a good friend of hers, Ryan Farrell, who's a sprint car driver from WA, 
rang and said, oh, Darren's had a massive crash. Um, turns out it was on the 6 o'clock news and um, she decided she was going to get on a plane and come over and, um, yeah, that's what happened. 25 years on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So at the time of meeting the woman who'd become your wife and you lose your drive, all in this same little period here, they've, they've benched you but, you know, in the overall scheme of life, it was it was a very good time. But was, at the time it was, it was professionally a very, challenging. Yeah, it was a good time. Look, um, you know, at, at the end of 1998 I flew over to Perth to to visit Mel and we went to Bustleton for a night or two and um, as you did back in the day, auto action comes out, so you go to the news agents, got to buy auto action and I remember standing there, you know, it was at about knee height on the shelf and um, there it is on the front page, Murphy and Richards. To uh to drive the winds car so that's how you found out. You that's how drive. I found out. So, no inkling, no clue. No, not no. Look, there was probably plenty of signs that you know, but at that stage, you know, my connection was not so much with the team; it was with Gary. So it was not like I was down there every second day. Um, although I did actually happen to you know work at Gibson's for a period but it's all a bit gray as to to when all of that occurred but no there was certainly no inkling um that I wasn't going to have a drive but I found out pretty quickly that was the case <laughs> mm-hmm. so going to WA to the news agent told you your future for, for the next little period at least anyway there so yeah that's not right. the way that you would like that sort of news to be delivered to you I'm sure no no look at all of that could have been handled better but it is what it is and that is where we're going to stop part one of darren hossack on the v8 sleuth podcast polished by bowden's own premium car care we'll leave the chat there so he's just lost his wins v8 supercar seat and found out in a way it's never a nice way to learn of such career moves but that was far from the end of hossack's racing story and part two next week opens us up to all the racing that he's done in the last 25 years, including that last foray into V8 supercars with Ford Performance Racing 20 years ago in 2003. I really enjoyed this chat. I hope you did too. Part one was great. Part two still to come. That's us done for this episode of the pod. I'm Aaron Noonan. Thanks for tuning in. Send us your feedback via the form on our website, and I'll chat with you soon with another episode next week. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.